What is up, fellow thermonuclear AFers? I am Dan Valley coming at you with the third mailbag of this week. Uh, I promised I would get to every single question question that we got. Um, I probably at some point can't do that. I'm going to take Twitter solicitations. This is the first Twitter solicitation that we've done. However, we don't do them often, so join our Discord. The link to that is in the podcast and YouTube description if you are new around these parts so that you do get mailbag priority, and you can also talk with the great community that we have going on over there also please remember to subscribe to us in general wherever you're consuming us if you're checking us out on the podcast for the first time please subscribe apple spotify stitcher google play wherever also go over and subscribe on youtube and if you're watching this video on youtube hit like comment help the algorithm love us back really trying to grow this podcast it has been as everyone knows a gradual grind but grant and i we are committed to doing it follow us on all the socials those are in the podcast and youtube descriptions as well they might be up on your screen at hardwood Knox everywhere except for instagram which is at hardwood underscore Knox for some reason i don't i don't know why i think i might have made an account and then deleted it but who the hell knows um and yes, I believe that that is all the housekeeping notes. So this is the third mailbag. Also, we'll be going back to Hot or Not next week, so you can get those submissions in on Discord. That was by request, um, Hot or Not 2.0. So head over to our Discord. There's a there's a um, a server or chat room in there, whatever it's called, uh, a special room within our server, I should say, excuse me, where you can go in, give us your hot take, and we will respond to it, whether to say it's hot or not, and not to say that it needs to be hotter, but if it's not, it means like it might be more reasonable than you or others think but yes let's get to this mailbag i have a lot of questions i didn't want to do four mailbags this week because i am exhausted um and we had enough questions for them so i'm going to try and blow through 15 if i have to split this up um because i have 15 or 16 questions i will split it up and we'll just put out a fourth mailbag this week i also am you're gonna if you're watching on the screen um my internet is all sorts of fucked up i'm recording this on the obs server with my 4k webcam that i just never use because who wants to see me in 4k and i don't even know if um, the program I used to edit this lets you edit in 4K anyway. 1080p might be where it tops out at. So maybe I'm only looking at myself in 4K. How's that make everybody else um, feel? It makes me feel I, I don't like it. Uh, but my internet is just all over the place at this point. So I'm going to have to use my phone for a lot of this, although I do have a dock set up with my notes offline. With that, though, and it, look, it sucks because this is probably going to make it harder to timestamp given the program I'm using. But look, we'll, we'll push on. We'll push on. So the first question we have comes from friend and longtime listener of the podcast, Miroslav Shook. He asks, who is going to end up with a better record this season, the Jazz or the Timberwolves? Fascinating question. Um, even still, as Utah has crashed back down to earth a little bit amid the, the Mike Conley absence as well, because the Timberwolves aren't going to have Carl Anthony Towns for at least four to six weeks while he's recovering from that calf strain. They've been all over the place. I think a lot of people took their win over the Grizzlies as, oh, they can make it without him, but the Grizzlies couldn't hit a free throw, and they were turning the ball over every five seconds. Um, I'll believe that they can survive this stretch adequately when I see it. Maybe they can. I just don't know. They have to hit more of their shots to play like a traditional team around Gobert. Towns absence probably helps their defense. I'm just curious as to what it does to their offense when it was already tenuous when it came to floor spacing. Uh, that being said, I think it's still the Timberwolves that get there. The Jazz have the better record and the net rating as I record this. Um, they have been an offensive fireball, fourth in points scored per possession, seventh in effective field goal percentage, fourth in offensive rebounding. And they have the personnel to sort of fuck shit up there for the rest of the season, I would argue. I just don't buy that they're going to follow that route. I think not as soon as they dip below 500, but if they do dip below 500, which is eminently possible because they're 13 and 11, I, I just think we're going to see trades. And it's not like, oh, we have to trade Larry Markin and Colin Sexton when he's trade eligible. 
it's a matter of they're going to plan for the long term. And so you look at if Mike Conley's healthy enough or if Malik Beasley, he has that team option. Do you want him around long term? They've been really good. If you can get value for those guys, if you're going to get Lakers picks for those guys, I think they consider it. And so I do believe that it's too late for them to tank for Wembenyama, which is fine. I would still be surprised if they went the double down route or stood pat versus doing some kind of, of sell-off. And I'm not, they can do whatever they want at this point because they've just been so plucky and, and fun. But I I do believe that that's the route, that they're ultimately going to travel. That, that Danny Ainge and Justin Zanuck, they have the longer-term vision in mind. That being said, this Carl Anthony Townsend injury, given the struggles that the Timberwolves even had before he's going out, it definitely throws a wrinkle into the plans. I just, I look at the talent on the roster and assuming they ever get fully healthy, it feels like they're a team that should be able to figure it out in time and that they're going to shoot better, including towns. Like a lot of these guys are just not even shooting. Imagine if like everyone on the Timberwolves or D'Lo was shooting his career percentage from three or towns was shooting his career percentage from three, just how much better it gets for, for this squad. So I, I think it's Utah. I don't feel great about it. There shouldn't even have been a question though. When you come into the, when, when we were coming into the first part of the season. So kudos to, to the Jazz for making this difficult. Uh, next question comes from Jake G. Should the Hornets try to move on from Terry uh, Rozier, Gordon Hayward, Plum Dog, and Kelly Oubre to open up playing time for James Booknight, Kai Jones, JT Thor, and Mark Williams, especially considering number zero JT Thor might be the best player of all time? 30 points, nine rebounds, two steals, one block in G League. Um, they didn't have his number 21 jersey, so that's why they said number zero. Look, this is interesting because I feel like when uh, when fans of specific teams listen to national NBA podcasts, they get mad for tackling the low-hanging fruit, and I do think sometimes it's fair. This, though, is a talking point that is probably viewed as low-hanging fruit, but we get asked it a ton. It's, it's We've had chats about it in Discord. I've been asked about it in DMs. Jake's asking about it now, and Hornets fans are clearly interested in it. And the answer is yes. I mean, like they might be organically bad enough because they do have the third-worst record in the East, to just enter the Wemby stakes. Um, but right now, you know, you're only like one and a half games in front of, I think two two in the loss column of the worst team in the league right now, which is the Orlando Magic. Go for it. And like Gordon Hayward's already injured. So get like, excuse me, you might be bad enough. But what if Terry Rozier starts shooting better? So I, I would absolutely open up playing time for all these guys. Some of the issues here going towards that route is you're probably not getting value for a lot of the guys that you are would be selling off here. What does Hayward get you with his injury history and his current injury with one year and $31.5 million left on his deal? Terry Rozier is three years and $73 million left on his deal, and he has shot the ball absurdly poorly so far this season. I don't know that you get value for Plumlee. He's certainly movable. You probably could get something for Ubre the way that he's been playing now, and he's had to set up even more of the offense lately. But I think, look, you're obligated to see what you have in these young guys. We haven't really seen Mark Williams this season. Um, I saw the game that he played in garbage time against the Magic. All I think that was October at this point. And he just looked really raw. Just not a lot of feel around the basket. It was cool to see him. He had like a couple poach touches and what he might be able to do there. But he just looked really raw. Uh, James Booknight, for sure, You he's had like more of a role um, lately, but like, He's not hitting his free throws. He's not hitting his threes. He's layups off the side of the backboard. It feels like he's really rushing it, even on his catch-and-shoot opportunities, um, whereas like his feet's not set or his body's just not set. And so you want to maybe give him the the leeway to make those mistakes. Is he worried about um, – is he in his own head and doesn't want to be pulled, so you need to give him that longer rope? Uh, I think with you know Kai Jones, you need to see what you have in these centers specifically, these bigs. And JT Thor is going to be in there too. 
Um, Kai Jones has had like some nice moments in, in like the minutes he's played this year. Opponents are only shooting five of 14 against them at the rim. 35.7%. That's really good. He had a sick ass block on Carl Anthony Towns. I think right before Thanksgiving, he can move really well. Love his haircut, by the way. I like that they're experimenting with him when it comes to threes. So I want to see more of him too. Even if it feels like, Oh, maybe Mark Williams or JT Thor or, um, or just the better long-term prospects for them. And I want to see just more of Kai Jones. And maybe there's the method to the madness of bringing him along slowly so he doesn't look as as raw as a Mark Williams in in live playing time. Like, we saw some of that from Kai Jones in minimal playing time as a rookie, too. So I get the Hornets' inclination to want them to go through the motions. But look, JT Thor, I think he's been better. Like, it feels like he's comfortable making plays out of the corner if he has to keep the ball moving or put the ball on the floor. That's really huge. Um, so, and like even Nick Richards too, like that's someone I guess we've seen plenty of this season. Those are the guys you want and have to see more of. I'll take more of Dennis Smith Jr. This year, even though he's cooled off a little bit, um, get LaMelo once he's healthy, a feel for how he plays alongside them, but you're obligated. Even if you don't think, well, what what are they kind of plumbing? All these guys are so transient. You, You have to, like, you just have to, because I think you need to be playing that longer game here. And I absolutely would be trying to bottom it out this season. And also the other name that I didn't mention, I'd be looking at seeing what PJ Washington's trade value is just, he's going into restricted free agency. You're not really, I don't know how, maybe it doesn't cost a ton, but if it ends up that he's going to run you like 14, 15 plus million per year, that's not a boatload in the new salary cap climate. At the same time, it's a lot more than I think you're in a position to to pay this team. So I'd be focusing on trying to lean up the long-term books uh, and you should be in the Russell Westbrook trade sweepstakes for that reason. If it gets you out of even the final year of Gordon Hayward's salary, um, just to sort of truncate that and provide you with more flexibility. But if it gets you off of Rozier's salary, um, for sure there. But I think you could probably get real value for Kelly Oubre Jr. When Cody Martin's healthy, I think you just keep him, um, but you might be able to get value for him as well. I would absolutely be going this route if I'm Charlotte. And yes, Jake, I want to see more of JT Thor at this point. I'm like mildly interested in what, um, Kai Jones can be this year, and I would love to see Mark Williams. I just don't think even if they bottom out, they're going to lean on him a bunch. I think with James Booknight, like you need to try and get him to a point where perhaps he feels comfortable because his trade value, like relative to his draft status too, it's just in the toilet at the moment. The NHL chicken asking an NBA question, but their handle is the at NBA uh, chicken. We've already seen the Jazz return to mean to the mean in recent weeks. Do you think the Pacers will follow suit, or are the Pacers for real? I could see them pulling the trigger on a trade to send them down to the Wemby sweepstakes. Yeah, look, I think, what does it mean to say that the Pacers are for real? Uh, I think the offense is for real, and it's not like super elite, but they play fast. They're fifth in average possession time. Um, the fact that Tyrese Halbert is so good at just controlling the game for everybody else, and you look at how everyone else is faring is is anyone playing over their head here i mean maybe benedict matherin hits a rookie wall but does coming off the bench safeguard him against that at all chris duarte before his injury wasn't playing all that well miles turner yeah he's like shooting the three ball um especially well relative to his career average but that's not absurd hit some nice shots in the post he's hit some really tough runners this year uh, so just like Jalen Smith has been like largely a disappointment offensively, I think, especially from beyond the arc for most of this season has come alive a, a little bit um, lately. So I, I don't think that, you know, are you, do you are the Pacers a contender? No, but I don't think anyone's billing them as that. I would say, could they be a team that hovers around 500 or better for the rest of the year? Yes, I think that they're capable of doing that. Do I think they will? 
No. I do believe, look, they're 6-4 and four in clutch games right now um, with a top two net rating. I don't know if that, hold, that holds. Maybe it does if you keep the band together. I ultimately just think with Turner facing free agency, he's the guy they move and they would feel his absence for sure. I don't know what value they get for him. Uh, if, the, if the Lakers offered the two first-round picks for him and Buddy Heald, I think the Pacers would ultimately do it, and I do think that they should do it. They don't have a lot of extra firsts. They have one from Boston and one from Cleveland this upcoming draft. Those aren't going to be higher-end assets. The Cavs won if Cleveland misses the playoffs, which they won't, but technically that could still turn into two seconds. So I do buy that Indiana is too good to stay this way and be in the, the Wemby sweepstakes, but I think we also need to recognize that they probably won't stay this way, even though they're not a team that has traditionally rebuilt. Like, if you're not going to extend Miles Turner now, maybe he won't extend, um, but if you're not planning on even offering him a big-money contract in free agency, you just you need to move him. This isn't a player that you should risk losing for nothing. What I will say would be the argument against this is that Indy is 12-9, and nine, which at this point in the season gives them a top-seven record. And so, like, their point differential doesn't reflect that, minus .5 net rating. There have been some games that skew that. Um, like, you can't really, like, you're not too far away from the Wemby sweepstakes, but you're eight games, eight losses ahead of the worst record in the NBA. And so it's a decision that some of these teams might need to make sooner rather than later just because of all the parity that's in the NBA, or at least all the teams that were supposed to be better that are off to these kind of crappy starts where it's like, oh, the Heat and the Bulls are just, they're bad, and the Lakers are bad unless they make a move. Uh, so, you know, there was a window of time where I think teams probably could have gotten worse and entered the tank sweepstakes maybe they weren't planning on it um, because there were so many teams that started out sort of on fire uh, OKC they're sort of coming back down to earth now the Spurs started out the season like gangbusters they're falling back down to earth a team like the Magic uh, and the Rockets and the Pistons like and now I mean the Spurs have lost enough to get down there like those are teams that have sort of picked up ground in the Wemby sweepstakes uh, because they were bad from the jump with the exception of the Spurs who were like super hot and then cooled off and a lot of these are more organic tanks the magic and the pistons aren't actively tanking the pistons don't have k right now so there are just limitations there but just like i i go back and forth as to whether there's still time for some of these teams like you looking at the jazz them being six games in the lost column front of the worst record not all these teams are gonna have time because some of these teams at the bottom are gonna stay at the bottom and then it just gets so hard to come up with enough, enough losses towards the latter end of the season when there might be so many other teams trying to lose. Does it get easier if a bunch of teams are fighting for play-in and, and playoff seating? Uh, perhaps that opens it up. But to answer your question, I do think the Pacers end up being sellers. Uh, but but I would, if they stay together, I would bet against them. Do I, if I like had to pick a win total, I think I might have went under on their win total this season. I can't remember. I was so sure that they were going to get rid of everybody, essentially. Um. They're, they're more for real than not. I think, like, the offensive stuff we see them as for real. Do I think that they're going to have a better record than the Clippers? No. The Sixers, when all said and done, probably not. So do I think that they're, like, a play-in team? Let's say, yes. I think that if they stay together, they are. They are a play-in team. I think I've just seen enough, and they're so fun and free and frisky, and it doesn't seem like teams are, are ready to understand them just, just yet. Our next question comes from... Shalimar the God, I believe. Let's see from there. Shalimar the God. Why did the Houston Rockets hold on to Eric Gordon um, so long? Also, why didn't LaMarcus Aldridge sign with the Suns? They get those two and Torrey Craig, and they they get a chip. So uh, I don't know why the Rockets still have Eric Gordon on their roster. My guess is that they overplayed their hand, and maybe they had offers for lower-end first-round picks or first-round picks that came attached to, to long-term money, and 
they didn't want. I'm sorry that I'm yawning so much. I'm honestly exhausted. I and they didn't want Eric Gordon, like, or they didn't want the extra long term money. Um, I also think that maybe they sort of overrested how teams were scared of his contract. This is the final season. It technically guarantees for another season if you win a championship, in which case you should be happy to pay Eric Gordon if that's the case. I just think they sort of overplayed their hand. I don't think he's there for leadership purposes. He's looked miserable at a couple points this season, so I definitely don't think it's that. I would bet on him being moved. A lot of people sort of say, well, he's just going to get bought out. And it's, I mean, it's possible after the trade deadline if he's still on the roster. But by trading for him, you guarantee that there won't be competition for his services from other teams. So I do think they'll move him. I think they should have moved him already. Uh, he probably had peak value last season would be my guess, or at least going into the offseason, if not that. I believe you're mentioning Phoenix as when you're saying getting the Marcus Aldridge, Torrey Craig, and Eric Gordon, they'd be uh, title favorites. I have advocated for the Suns to trade for Eric Gordon a bunch. I got a lot of pushback from Suns fans in the YouTube comments. I still don't understand why. Yes, he makes a lot of money, but at this point, if it all it costs you is your 2023 first-round pick, which is going to be like number 29, you're not hamstringing yourself in any trade negotiation. So, yeah, if you want to wait, you might be able to do it without getting giving up a first-round pick at, at this point. Um, can you give up seconds to get it done? I don't know. Like, he only has half a season left on his deal. So, and if you're giving up a first-round pick, maybe you're getting K.J. Martin or somebody else as part of it, too. So, I like him on the Suns. Uh, I don't... I, I LaMarcus Aldridge, to me, from last season, like, be, from being able to hit his normal shots, okay, fine. But I, he basically looked, like, cooked on defense to me. Um, maybe I didn't watch enough of him, so it's fine if you want to differ there, Shalimar. But uh, I don't think that they needed to sign Lamar. I, I just don't know that he helps this team. They've gotten good minutes, um, backup bigs from um, Jock Landale and Bismarck Biombo at points. And I would probably rather than go to LaMarcus Aldridge right now, I'd rather downsize, um, which is not something that they're doing. But uh, I am with you in the sense that the Suns could stand to make a trade, especially they've played really well in light of Cam Johnson's injury, CP3's injury, uh, and then Jay Crowder not being with the team. But, like, they're a regular season machine. We know this. And you want to avoid the fate that you had last postseason where, yeah, you had COVID. We get it. But, like, shit comes up for everyone every postseason. It still feels like they need the sixth or seventh best player on their team at minimum. And that's not to be an insult to Torrey Craig, who's played well for them, or to uh, Cameron Payne, who sort of had a bounce back year for them, or Damian Lee. It's just that you need a better, to me, if Jay Crowder's not going to be, let's say, a sixth best player on this team, maybe someone who's in a, a select few of your your closing lineup. So I don't think LaMarcus Aldridge would have made that difference for them. That would have been, I would imagine that he would have been right now at best. I mean, like we're talking about a team where everyone was super excited for um, Dario Sarch to come back. And now look at the role that he's played this season, which is to say like, it's not one, like he's just not playing this huge role. And I don't imagine that LaMarcus Aldridge would have been ahead of him in the, um, in, in, inside their, their rotation. So, yeah, that's where I'm at with that. Next question comes from Ryan Yost. What surprise contender is most likely to fade through the season and which surprisingly struggling team is most likely to turn it around? So this is not, I want to make it clear, this is not a humble brag. I don't know that I'm surprised by any contender. So I don't know that I worry about them pulling back. If you want to say the Jazz or the Pacers, that's fine. I just didn't consider that they were huge surprises. I never considered them actual contenders. The Pelicans could be the answer here. I just don't necessarily see them pulling back unless when they are actually at full strength, it marginalizes Zion again on offense, and then we see that sort of spill over into his defense. But he's been playing top 10 player in the league basketball lately, so I, I buy into them. The struggling portion of this, which struggling team is most likely to turn it around, 
do we count the Clippers? I think we do, just with the Kawhi injury stuff, and now Paul George is injured. Um, I would trust them to make a move. They can trade a first-round pick this season to do something that beefs up their rotation. I think GSW, does it still count as uh, the Warriors, not you know what GSW actually stands for? So the Warriors, they should still be counted as struggling just based off where they are in the standings. I do trust them a little bit more to get their act together. I think they found something with the Draymond plus bench heavy units. But I actually think the team for me is Miami because when they are at full strength, Jimmy Butler comes back. Hopefully, and he's not you know fucking him over for too much, too long. Uh, their defense will be hellacious, and that can be their identity. And it's enough to get by even with the mediocre offense. Kyle Lowry looks a lot better lately. It feels like they're playing him too much. Hopefully, that can be pulled back. I also, I think I just have confidence that they're going to be the team that makes the move. We don't know that Golden State is going to give up on you know Wiseman or any of the other just youngsters. I don't really think they sh- they're not in a position where they have to give up on Kaminga, but I think Miami's going to be more open ended about his trade options than the Warriors and then even the Clippers, who are just super deep um, right now. And they can only trade one first anyway. So I'm going to go with Miami, even though when I look at these three teams, I'm still going to be lowest on Miami's offense, like at full strength, which is just such a weird thing to say. Um, but I, I guess I just have the most confidence. I don't have the most confidence that they'll be the healthiest. Uh, that would be probably Golden State. They're not dealing with any like super major injuries to begin with right now. So I'm most confident in Golden State being healthy enough to turn it around or continue turning it around. Um, I think the Clippers might have the highest ceiling if everyone's available. I don't like the, everyone's ceiling is championship. So that's a bad way to phrase it. And the Warriors would be right there thanks to Steph. But I'm just going to go with Miami because I think that they would be a team that's willing to shake up the roster closer to the the trade deadline. And they just have a bunch of picks that they theoretically, they can go up to three, depending on you know the commitment to OKC, they can include three first round picks and three swaps. And so that's, I would keep an eye on, on that team. Next question comes from Andre. Uh, they ask, should the Blazers trade Yusuf Nurkic or Josh Hart? That's an interesting question. Um, should they? Like, I'm not active. Nurkic, like, hitting 41% of his threes. Josh Hart, just be energetic rebounder, plays really hard. You wish he would hit more of his threes. I don't know that you're, you should be looking to trade those guys actively, but it does feel like this team needs another move. I look at sort of the front court in general. They need another type of, like, floor spacing center would be nice. Um, a bigger wing who can, like, set up his own offense or someone else's or the team's offense working from the outside in. So just sort of a face up playmaking wing. Uh, a lot of teams could use those though. And I I think they have Jeremy Grant. I get that. He's just not much of a table setter for everybody else. Here's my point. Now the Blazers run into a few issues there. How much are you going to give up for a center when you have Nurkic? And if you're trying to upgrade from Nurkic, who are you going after? Miles Turner might still be a slightly better offensive fit, but like Nurkic can be used as more of a hub in addition to the way he's stretching the floor, and then you don't want to have Turner and Nurkic on the same team. If you're just looking for flat-out floor spacing, and improvement over maybe like, oh, the Winslow minutes when he's out there, or Eubanks, uh, Mo Bamba is sort of floating around. Nas Reed would have been really interesting for this team before the Carl Anthony Towns injury. Uh, Kelly Olenek with Utah, that's someone who who might work as well. Um, the, the big man front is tough for this, and also you run into an issue with the Blazers of salary matching, where it's it's like you're going to have to give up the core players in some of these trades. And so let's just assume they're not going to trade Dame or Ant or Nurkic. 
Um, Shane Sharp should only be moved in like a mega blockbuster trade. Kevin Durant becomes available or something. So um, you're presumably not going to move him. And like Nurkic and Hart, yes, you you can't view them as untouchable. And, and Hart's going to be a free agent this year as an ETO for next season. I, like, I just, wh- who are you moving them for is my point. Like, if it's a matter of, do you consider OG Ananobi a playmaking wing? Okay, fine. But, like, Nurkic and Hart, like, Hart would have to be the start of any package. Um, your pick equity would then have to flesh it out in addition to other salary filler. So, they're, like, and if they're willing to move GP2 once he is trade eligible, like, that gives you some, like, salary matching tools to work with. But otherwise, you know, Dame, Anthony Simon, Jeremy Grant, Yusuf Nurkic, Josh Hart... Those guys we could reasonably assume are not off limits, but you're not actively looking to trade. So you're, then your biggest salary matching tool, like I said, is GP2. After that, it's Shane Sharp, and it really shouldn't be him. And then after that, you're at $4.1 million with Justice Winslow. You're at $2.7 million with Keon Johnson. So like, there are moves that you can make, and I'll go through some other names now. But that's the if you're going to trade like a core piece of your rotation, it better be as part of a bigger deal. And that's a little bit tough to strike right now uh, just because they – like you – like you have the um, the obligation to to Toronto, the, uh, to Toronto, wow, to Chicago that you still owe for this season, and so you want that pick to convey so that it opens up like your other future picks because it gets, it makes it harder to structure deals. And so, can you find players where you're maybe not having to give up a pick? Uh, some names I thought about Cody Martin if he's healthy in Charlotte that would give you a lot of playmaking and some defense um, on the wings front. And if he's hitting enough of his threes, even better. Um, Josh Richardson in San Antonio doesn't really check the playmaking box. and He's not super big, but he can guard some power wings, and he's going to give you enough three-point shooting. And I think he'll give you enough live dribbling and bench-heavier units, but definitely not a playmaker. And then the two that would be higher end, and I don't know how you're getting out of these deals without giving up a first-round pick, uh, Malik Beasley, again, not someone who you would classify as a playmaker, but he can put the ball on the deck. He's really slinging it from three this year. And then maybe like one of the most interesting ones would be a Kyle Kuzma. Uh, averaging you know, almost four assists per game this year. They have him doing some more stuff with the ball in his hands. He's looked really good at points. Had some rough nights, but the offense just generally looks better when, when he's on the court. He's going into the final year of his deal. He's a $12 million player option. He's going to decline. So what does it cost to get him out of Washington? Washington fancies itself sort of this middling team. So are they even actively looking to trade him? Um, would I give up Josh Hart in a scenario for Kyle Kuzma? I probably would. So, like, you could start from there. I just I don't know what the Wizards end game would necessarily be. So, to answer your question, Andre, I don't think they should. But if they have to, like, those aren't guys that should be untouchable to me. I do think Nurkic is probably a little bit tougher to part with just because what big are you getting back? The Aiton ship has sailed. And I don't know, like, Miles Turner's having a hell of a season. But do you prefer him over Nurkic? Defensively, absolutely. So, maybe you would look at it as a rebounder. I don't know. As a passer, definitely not. It's like just sort of an overall offensive hub. Still probably no. We've seen Turner do some stuff in the post. Like I said, hit a few runners before, but like that's just not that's just not his his game. So, uh, but I do think the Blazers will be a team that makes a move this season. I don't know how big, just because you're on Damian Lillard's timeline, and there's just implied urgency here, especially with Jeremy Grant and Josh Hart going towards free agency. Next question comes from Safe. Will DeJounte Murray regain top form alongside Trey Young? I don't know that DeJounte Murray is bottomed out like at all, let alone enough to say that he needs to regain top form. Uh, he's shooting 45.7% from three on nearly nine attempts per game over his last four games. 
he is getting some there, there's some awkwardness on offense though you could just tell that him and trey young need to occupy the same spaces at points we've seen trey probably suffer more than him but murray is just also not getting the rim anywhere near as much as he has for his career uh i think 18.8 percent of his shots are coming at the rim that's a career low He's very mid-range heavy right now, which is fine, more so than usual, which is fine when he's hitting over 50%, but like that would be sort of unprecedented for him at this volume. I don't know what more we're looking for from this group. You go start digging into the lineup data, and the one-guard units get a little bit tough. Their starting lineup, by and large, is doing its job before the John Collins injury. Um, I just think there's weird spacing for this team and they've become super mid-range heavy. And if you can open up the floor a little bit, I think Bogdanovich's return would do that for them. Otherwise, like you might need to go to the trade market. Maybe that's what you're looking for in a John Collins trade. But it is going to be a little bit awkward for Murray and Trey because you're dealing with the one big in Quinn Capella. Like, there's your screener. There's your non-spacer. And if the team isn't shooting well from three, depending on like what wings you have on the roster, or if both Trey and Murray are on the court, and there's just, all right, well, how are we like working away off the ball? And I do think Trey Young has tried really hard to work off the ball in those situations. I think there's just awkwardness. And so would I expect Murray to be better? We saw him hit some, you know, there's been peaks with his three-point shooting, some valleys this season. I don't know if he's definitely not going to, you know, this volume right now and efficiency is over the past four games is mind-melting, so I wouldn't bet on it continuing. I think they'll be fine, though. There's just like, they're they're versatile, they're flexible, they're just imperfect. Um, they really could stand to make a like a move. I just don't know. You can't trade cons for picks because that's not your timeline. I don't know what teams are going to give up that actually improves your roster at this point uh, relative to how much John Collins has seen his role sort of truncate over this new world order where he's not the primary screener anymore because Clint Capella is there. And now you've taken even the ball out of his hands uh, for even more reps when you have both DeJounte Murray and Trey Young on the court. Their bench, like maybe it gets better. You know, do you trust like no, I don't. The answer is like I don't trust any either of the Holiday brothers at this point when they're both healthy. Um, AJ Griffin had some really nice moments. I really like Jalen Johnson, but like those aren't guys that are going to make plays for others. You really need like Bogdanovich back, and I think opening up the floor that makes a lot of the units without Trey specifically probably easier for Dejounte Murray. I don't know how you go out and get that guy though. Like I like if if that or just like a higher end sort of wing type where you're not playing a pure foreign Collins who's been pretty good defensively this year but like OG Ananobi's the name that's going to be thrown out there I don't know how you go out and get him if the Blazers maybe fell through like the floor and you could get Jeremy Grant is he playmaking enough he certainly like gives you more um you know relative to how John Collins is shooting this year and he was apparently dealing with an, the ill effects of an injury so factor that in but like yeah Jeremy Grant would probably be a floor spacing boon and that would help out Murray too but just with the way that the Hawks have been shooting the ball coupled with their roster makeup coupled with the new environment that he's in I think that's going to account for uh most of the awkwardness here and so I would not be worried safe if that's sort of the the general context of your question that's uh, that's that's where I'm at with this Tay Asks, if a player is available but doesn't play, does that affect their per-game averages? The answer is no. Uh, it's because it doesn't, they don't need to, you know, just when, when they're not playing, they're not playing any minutes. So, like, I, I I guess the best way to describe it is just, like, it's not counting toward their stat total um, when they're not on the floor. Like, you don't have to pencil them in for one second just because they're on the active roster but not playing. So, a game that a player does not play in, uh, his stats are in effect. Now, if he's only playing a minute or something, like, yeah, that's going to go towards his game appearances. But that's why um, stats like per 100 possessions or per 36 minutes uh, can be very important and useful. Next question comes from 
Ashish John Thomas, and they ask, what is more important, running away with the conference and finishing with the top two seed and while doing so sticking to your style of play or get or getting home court advantage in a top four seed while experimenting along the way and getting yourself playoff proof? Uh, this does feel like an instance where I think you might have answered your your own question here. It's the latter, and we saw it with the Bucks before they won their title. That regular season, they spent a lot more time experimenting with their defense, trying out some different switch models, using Giannis differently. Um, and I think they're, we've even seen them do it again to great success this year when you're looking at how well they've defended both the three-point line and the rim. Um, and there's just value in that, overseeding. Like you want to be able to play all these different styles and be malleable based on the matchups that you're going up against. And I think self-discovery, self-exploration is incredibly important during the regular season. It's so long. It's definitely not meaningless, especially now when you have so many of these teams that are just tightly packed together. But if you can figure out something about yourself, let's say let's throw top four out of the equation. Like, yeah, you want home court advantage. But like if you're fourth and you're in these like the a conference finals, the chance that you're probably not gonna have home court advantage anyway. So even if you're fifth, even if you're sixth, like if you're avoiding the first, you know, two seeds in the first round, if you know more about yourself and think that you're more flexible, you're more adaptable, there's going to be value in that when you need to pick up sixteen wins and so there's definitely a balance to strike because you don't want to you know oh if you have the opportunity to get three but you just settle for six because you're claiming you're experimenting well did you get any better if you dropped from three to six so there's there's a fair amount of that going on but i think the bucks when they won their title uh, in 2021 like they were just a perfect example of a team that was able to have this sort of functional epiphany and try out different shit and that's what the regular season should be for no matter how good you are again there has to be a stomach for it but it's why you need to be open to pivoting and if you see something's not working or just trying different things and especially if you're just sort of a a team that's like a returning failure like you've fallen short in the past couple of playoff runs um you want to try different things in the regular season now some other issues go into that where it's like if you're a team like the suns you're so injured right now but also a lot of your shortcomings last year you didn't fix like, there's no one on the roster who's going to fix it. Mikhail's definitely giving you feels like more on-ball pressure when it comes to putting defenses in rotation. But, like, you know, and even Aiton, like, is he playing with more force? He's been good lately, but there's still ebbs and flows to the way he plays. But when it's a team that very clearly needs to go out and get outside players, or the Nuggets case where it's, well, you think they got what they need in Bruce Brown and this version of Eric, uh, Aaron Gordon and then also KCP, but, like, you really haven't seen your who are supposed to be your three most important players in MPJ, Jamal Murray, and Nikola Jokic all healthy together at once for a while. It's tougher to get that information and experiment, but like the Nuggets there before MPJ gets injured, like, yeah, he should have been playing more with the bench. Like that's something you should find out about yourself, even if it's costing you uh, some some wins because those wrinkles can become very important during the playoffs. Again, as we saw with the Bucks and their, their defense specifically in, in 2021. That's a great question though. Next question comes from maybe Axum Trell. They ask, is the Grizzlies bench ready for a run in the playoffs? I don't know that I'm allowed to answer any Grizzlies question negatively because whenever I do, I'm wrong. So I'm going to answer it negatively again, and I'll probably be wrong. No? Like, I don't, like, will they be? Perhaps. But they're 27th in bench point differential right now. Uh, a lot goes into that, I think. Losing De'Anthony Melton, losing Kyle Korver, like you've lost some juice on the defensive end when you're looking at bench heavier mobs. You've dealt with a bunch of different injuries at this point. Jaron Jackson Jr. only just comes back, so you're still trying to get a feel for your bench rotations. Zaire Williams hasn't played yet this season. Danny Green's sort of floating around on this roster, but he's coming back from an ACL injury, so I can't imagine he's playing this season. Now you have Desmond Bain, 
um, changing up your rotation because of his injury. But like, there were some troubling signs. The the Bane no jaw lineups were getting slaughtered as good as Bane was. Um, is there enough defense in those? They they felt like they could have done more to set Bane up to succeed. Like you had Tyus Jones, and then it was we'll put like David Roddy and Jake Laravia out there, and even Brandon. Like it was just putting a lot on Bane's shoulders as a creator and even a defender. Um, the jaw plus no Bane lineups, they are winning those minutes, but not by much. And then the no jaw, no Bane units, which will not be a problem in the playoffs. But if you're talking bench heavy mobs, they are getting destroyed. Minus 9.3 points per 100 possessions. And so I think that's the risk they run. You talk about, we just talked about self-discovering the regular season. Like they're trying to get real run out of Santi Aldama, who's had highs and lows this year. Jake Laravia, ditto. David Roddy, John Conchar playing a bigger bigger role and like time miss me is factors into this like jaron jackson jr coming back will have a trickle down effect um and like the bench comes up you know they're doing a lot of frisky stuff against the timberwolves the other night so i think that the minnesota timberwolves have the potential to still adopt that sort of like i don't want to say bottomless identity but just like where they have real depth i don't have as much confidence in the bench this year nearly nearly this year as i did last year so at this moment if the playoffs started today no and let's bring desmond bain back there you go but like does this bench need zaire williams at this point they, they really might so they also might need to make a trade but my answer right now is no and like perking up a little bit okay fine in looking at recently like i, th- I think that that's that's important that also being said like, we can't just ignore the the entire season worth of data and i i also i guess what helps is once you have jaron jackson jr and bane and Ja and dylan brooks like those guys all healthy together um yeah like it's gonna get a lot easier to manipulate your your rotations and try out different things but like you know as of right now their best bench player has been tyus jones this season and like john contrast still hitting his threes Santi Aldama went through sort of a trough with his shooting, but he's shooting 40% from deep over his last 10 games. Uh, David Roddy, 38% from three over his last 10 games. The Ravia sub 25 there. So, like, I, again, I think these are going to be valuable reps for uh, what the Grizzlies are trying to do with their bench. I'm just curious to see how it does hold up in the playoffs. And is this team built to play differently enough if they go up against a team that can punish them for trying to play? Not, like, super big, but, like, where Steven Adams gets played off the floor again. Like, how are you figuring that out? You have Jaron Jackson Jr. at the five in your back pocket, and those lineups can be killer. But like, what is your answer beyond that? Like, how are you, if, if Steven Adams is actually out of the equation, how are you buying your center minutes then? Was Brandon Clark enough to do that there? Um, I don't know. And then, look, the other thing is the half court offense, for the most part, has still been a problem. And teams are going to catch on to like you being able to, they still crash the offensive glass. No team in the league does that better than the Memphis Grizzlies right now, which is like maybe the least shocking development. Uh, but I guess they would, I guess you could have gone with, if you picked like maybe the, the Pelicans, I, I would have understood that. Uh, but like if they have court offense, once again, bottom seven inefficiency. And so how are you going to counter that? So Williams might actually help you with that. I think there's some self creativity to be explored, but he's not getting valuable reps right now because he's injured. Uh, but your transition frequency, like that can be neutered in the playoffs. And so is the answer on this roster, do they have enough half-court offense? The tippy top, maybe. Like I think you need Jared Jackson Jr. on ball to hit another gear or really get something from Zaire Williams. Um, otherwise, you do have Desmond Bain and John Morant, but not a lot after them. That's not really Tyus Jones's game. So my answer is no, but as of right now. If the playoffs started today, I would not be confident, but I'm not going to write it off because every time I write off the Grizzlies, uh, it comes back to bite me in in the ass. 
Our next question comes from Burner Raps. Who do the numbers suggest are the defensive player of the year right now? Anyone who listens to this podcast knows I don't like going by numbers for defensive player of the year because defense is so hard to quantify. Um, that being said, you can definitely you can use them, blend the eye test, blend some of the more specific stats. Um, B-Ball Index has just a treasure trove of all those context data points. But when you go into sort of the catch-alls right now, not all of them are up because we're so early in the season. The names that keep coming up for me looking at them is Giannis, Brooke Lopez, OG Ananobi, Jared Allen, and Draymond Green is the five. The numbers seem to not like Bam Adebayo. I would definitely have him up there. But those seem to be, I'll throw the sixth in there because just from what I've seen of Bam, I think that he would belong there. Those are kind of the six names I see the most. And there's like a groundswell for Brooke Lopez um, in those numbers, but also just in general. Um, Jared Allen's name popping up a ton there. If I had to pick my own defensive player of the year right now, I don't know that I would be able to. It's one of those, like, the MVP race is too close to call. This feels too close to call. I get the inclination for Brooke Lopez. I think he might have been the betting favorite for DPOI the other day, which is just, that's just wild. Think about how Brooke Lopez started his career. Fast forward more than, like, a decade. What is this, year 15, year 14 for him, whatever it is, and now he might be the favorite to win defensive player of the year? That is, like... Yeah, this is year 15 for him. Like, that is just, that is wild. Um, I want him to win just because that is one of the most absurd arcs in NBA history, given that he was considered such a liability. Teams, those net teams probably didn't understand how to use them, but just to, like, and then all of a sudden, like, it looks, not that he's on the outskirts of the league, but, like, he got signed for the biannual at one point. That was just going to be the defensive player of the year. That's just so, uh, that's amazing to me, is my point. Uh, if I had to pick a least likely player to win it out of the people I named, I think it'd be Jared Allen, especially because he's set to, to miss some time at the moment. Also, a name that popped up a lot in the metrics, if anyone cares, Nick Claxton, so keep an eye on that. I do wonder if there's enough time for Draymond Green to gain ground here. I think his importance on defense has been highlighted this year, even if the Warriors have not. Um, when you look at how they started the season specifically, like, yeah, okay, their defense has been great. They're 20th right now. So they would need to perk up a ton, and he would get receive a ton of credit if they skyrocketed the standings. My pick would probably... I think I still value Giannis over Brooke, um, but do Giannis and Brooke cannibalize each other, and that goes to OG Ananobi. So if you're OG Ananobi, you should probably be feeling pretty good about this because there's a chance that Lopez and Giannis sort of overwrite each other. But those are the names that are coming up most burner wraps. Uh, and I think most of them... I- I can't say any of them are egregious to belong there. Jared Allen, I would go back and forth on a little bit, but uh, like that sort of does line up with with what you're seeing. Nick Shank has our, our next question. Has there ever been a better offense than the Celtics at this point? So I see this number getting thrown around a lot or just people saying the Celtics have the best offensive rating in the NBA history. Uh, I don't use basketball references to offensive rating normally. I prefer cleaning the glass because it filters out garbage time, but this is ab- that's absolutely true. The Celtics have the highest offensive rating in NBA history. Now, a more efficient way to look at this is adjusted offensive rating, which is basically a team's offensive rating relative to the league average that year. So the best way I could frame this is, you know, if you have 120 offensive rating and the league average was 107, that's more impressive than having a 120 offensive rating when the league average was 112 or whatever it was. And so this season, the adjusted offensive rating of the Boston Celtics and their 122.2 offensive rating adjusted is 108.33. 
That is still very high. It's actually the second highest in NBA history, unless I have my numbers wrong. The highest in NBA history for adjusted offensive rating was the 2003-2004 Dallas Mavericks, led by Steve Nash, 108.94. So if the Celtics keep this up, like there's a chance that they could catch, catch that and actually have what would be the best offense in NBA history. And I'm not sure if maybe there were some more recent teams because we've seen even like a, I think a Rockets team and a Mavericks, like they've had the highest offensive rating in league history. So maybe I need to re- refresh my data there, but I don't know if, uh, as of right now, I believe that in terms of adjusted offensive rating that the, the Boston Celtics have the second best offense in league history, which is, uh, nothing to shy away from. Like that's like, that's incredible. And I don't know that I would have picked that for this team. Like you would assume their identity is going to be more so their defense, even without RW three. And it just, it has not been that, um, sort of sick sticking on the, the same topic. Jackson, Asked, is Jason Tatum the MVP? I mean, he fucking might be. He finished third on my last MVP ladder. You can go check out that podcast or that article. I've been doing them every two weeks. Uh, if you told me he was one, I wouldn't argue against you. I had Luka Doncic there still. That loss to the Pistons makes me rethink that. Steph was two for me. I do think those are still the top three names. Would Shea still be in my top five? I think he's still there. Uh, and then at number five, I had Giannis. Like He's just going to continue to creep up those. I think, look, if you just went best player on the best team, yeah, it's Jason Tatum. But I think what I've been most impressed by, he's been a monster on defense this year. They're definitely, like, I want to see the data drop on this, but they're definitely putting him, like, they're not throwing him to the wolves. It seems like he just wants these assignments. He's on, like, the toughest assignments more often, it feels like. And then the passing over, like, this past stretch, he's averaging over six assists per game. And so, yeah, like, his off the dribble three has not been falling like it usually does. And even his three-point percentage over the past couple weeks has dipped. But, like, there's just so many more elements to his game now he can score at every level and get to the foul line it's at a career high clip right now that he's getting there he's also getting the rim more just better smart smart decision maker on drives even when it comes as um like someone who's going to defer so I'm, I'm like talking myself into it now but when i do my next mvp ladder which is going to be about in a week and a half because one just came out like there's a real chance that he's number one i think you could make the case that it's a three-player race right now and that it might stay that way i do think Giannis will eventually party crash it i have maybe like minimal faith that Shea can stay as high as he did. Jokic is sort of creeping up there as well. There's a lot Devin Booker. There's a lot of good options. I think Tatum is clearly in the top three. And if, if you want Tatum to win it right now and he gets your vote, I'm going to tell you right, I can't make make an argument against it. And if I was to do the MVP, I don't want to overreact to what I've seen from the Mavericks, but if I was to redo the MVP ladder and after watching that Pistons game, seeing Luka get beat so much on defense, there's a chance Tatum's at least two. And he did finish two in my second MVP ladder. So, like, he's he skyrocketed as high as two. Um, I think he, if based off how voters go, I think he should probably be the betting favorite to win uh, MVP. How, how about that? I don't know if he'll be my pick, but as of right now, he would be my betting favorite to win the MVP award. And he deserves it, for that matter. How hard is it to answer has two questions. The first one is... Who had the first 20-point, 20-rebound, triple-double in NBA history? So the first person on record to have a 20-point, 20-rebound, triple-double was Larry Faust on March 2nd, 1952. He had 31 points, 20 rebounds, and 10 assists. Uh, the second question, if it, if you're interested in knowing, like anyone else, Maurice Stokes had like the next five, by the way. Then Elgin Baylor had a bunch of these. Uh Bob Oscar Robinson's definitely on there. See his name pop up a bit. Will Chamberlain, Guy Rogers. So, but yes, uh, Larry Faust. And I think that might've been his only one. So 
there's the answer to that one. The the next part of this question was who has the best plus minus this season and who has the worst plus minus. Uh, these I was upset that I didn't know them just off the cuff that I actually had to look them up. I'm a little bit ashamed. I did guess in my head though, and I I assume that Steph Curry had the best. He does not. It is actually. Speaking of an MVP case, Jason Tatum leads the league in plus-minus at a plus-198. Uh, second place is Jokic at plus-173. Steph was four, by the way. So just having that difference, you know, a 20... I, so he's played... Jason Tatum has played three more games than Jokic. Like, that's not entirely fair. But, like, plus-198 is just comfortably leading the league at this point. His availability has probably been a part of that. Uh, so, I, dude's just been a monster. The worst in the league... I I was I thought it was going to come from someone on Houston or Detroit. I was wrong, and it came from PJ Washington and Charlotte. Killian Hayes has the second worst though, which is wild after the game that he just had against Dallas. And then the third and fourth worst belong to Houston, so it makes you feel a little bit better. I was close. So PJ Washington minus one eighty worst plus minus in the NBA. Jason Tatum plus one ninety eight best plus minus in the NBA. Um, do I have time to get to these? Yeah. All right, Bradley. Bradley Yor had a bunch. I need to whip out my phone here because I told you I was having uh, all those internet issues. He had a bunch of quick fire ones that now I uh, here we go. So let's let me start the clock on this. Let me get the the timestamp in my head. So is Chris Finch on the hot seat? No, I think that like he might have been just because of the the lack of what felt like creativity on offense at points. The Carlton Towns injury almost inoculates him against disasters because this roster's been so stop and start from the beginning. Towns missed time in the preseason and and the playoffs. So if I had to scale one to ten, Chris Finch's hot seat, I'll say it's like maybe a five point two. I would just be I'd be shocked if he got fired this season. Can Boston be stopped? I mean, it's hard to say no to that, but I do think teams that I trust, and so that if they went up against Boston, I'd be interested to see uh, full strength Nuggets, full strength Bucks. And full strength Suns. I'll also say the Pelicans are rapidly in there for me too. Like I'm not. I think you can make things that no team is super scary other than full strength Celtics and full strength Bucks. But those are the teams at full strength: Pelicans, Nuggets, Suns, and Bucks. Who I would think that can really beat Boston. Which superstar will be traded next? Oh, doing this one off the cuff really sucks. I don't like. Who is Miles Turner? Is not a superstar. Like. What is the is it is Luca gonna request out with a trillion years left on his deal? I'm like I want to default to Bradley Beal just because the Wizards are so mediocre and he has a no trade clause. Uh, I just don't know if that's unfair. We saw De'Aaron Fox sign with Clutch Sports. I don't know why he'd want out of Sacramento at the moment. All right, here we go. The next superstar you want you want this the next top ten player that's gonna get traded, Joel Embiid. Like we're getting to the point contract coming up. I know he kind of bleeds Philadelphia, but if they're not, you know, if James Harden comes back, if if uh, Tyrese Maxey comes back and they're just not great, he has two years left on his deal before his playoffs, so technically three, but two years before he would be a free agent. I'm going to say Joel Embiid. That's the next superstar to get traded, just to piss off Brian Toporek. Uh, if we want to adjust the terms for superstar, I'll throw Bradley Beal in there. I just think that he is, the, like, Washington is, like, fast-tracked towards the middle. The really gutsy answer would be LaMelo Ball, but we're not going to go there. Will the Lakers make the play-in? No. Oh, my God. This is, like, why am I why am I thinking about this so much? 
They're thirteenth in the West. Or, no, the Lakers will not make the play. I'm trying to think of who will fall out of the play in uh, the playoff. The Suns no, Nuggets no, Pelicans no, Grizzlies no, Clippers no, Warriors no, the Kings, Jazz, Timberwolves, and Blazers. Those are teams you don't trust. But like Dallas is in front of L.A. too, so you need to usurp like two of three. Excuse me, of OKC, Dallas, Portland, Minnesota, the Jazz, and Sacramento. It was like just sort of the iffy teams. The answer is no. If they make a trade for Miles Turner or another star, that's subject to change for me. But I'm going to go with a no right now. If you last one, if you could start a franchise and draft one guy, 22 or younger, who do you pick? Current players only. Sorry, no Wemby. I wouldn't pick Wemby anyway. So uh, just I like to go with the known quantities here. This is tough. So uh, Anthony Edwards, no. I just don't think it would be him for me. So Evan Mobley, Scotty Barnes, maybe. All right, so the three that it would come down to for me would be Cade, Zion, and Tyrese Halliburton. And I might go with Tyrese Halliburton. I, I Is Tyrese Halliburton the pick? Am I, like, drinking the Kool-Aid too much? And, like, oh, Cade's injured. We haven't seen him develop just yet. I'm going to go with – no, ah. Uh, I want to go with Zion. Like, that is just the answer. I'm going with Zion. It would still be Zion. Halliburton and Cade are close now for me. And everyone knows I'm a Cade guy. So, for me to pick Halliburton over Cade would be wild. Maybe that's recency bias at play. But I'm going to go Zion, Halliburton, then Cade. I'm rolling the dice on Zion's injury history. Thank you to everyone who stuck with me. Thank you for all your questions. Please, if you made it this far, hit subscribe on YouTube. And also subscribe to us wherever you get your podcast. Follow us on Twitter and uh, TikTok at Hardwood Knox. Follow us on Instagram at Hardwood underscore Knox. Join our Discord. The link is in the podcast and YouTube descriptions. That's it for me. Until next time, I leave you with a shout out to the one, the only, the legendary Frank Nila Kina. <laughs>